0: Life is on is out of control good thing no one can see us <laughs> episode 31 B and bFC he said that with a lot of confidence yeah <laughs> it's fake but we are heading into the tail end of the season most of the teams only have two or three games left Arsenal stuttered at home to Brighton Brett's just right next to the mic waiting for him to I thought he was gonna say something. Don't they, get don't they, get don't get your tears on the mic. They didn't stutter these over. They
1: didn't stutter. It was like a car accident. I'm uh, going hundred on the number one and then right into a semi. But anyways, continue your intro intro. Well, that's so yeah,
0: strong. we don't have a lot of structures our listeners probably know. We've got our normal topics and then some stoppage time. Really the only match we're gonna focus on a lot in this episode is the Arsenal Brighton game. Because it was significant. And B, the United game was fairly comprehensive and straightforward, as was City's. Liverpool just demolished Leicester earlier this afternoon. The thing about Arsenal, you know, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this one, it just, there was just no intensity of a team that's looking to try and pull back or pull closer to City. And even if you have the mentality of, most of the Arsenal players probably went in thinking, okay, no matter what, we're still probably not going to win the title, but at least we got to give it a good shot, but it, it didn't. It just looked so pedestrian. It looked like a mid-table game or game at the end of the season in which neither team really needs to fight for anything.
1: Are you trying to hurt me?
0: I'm not. It's true. It's Are you true. trying to
1: hurt me? Because you did. Okay. We'll be talking about Arsenal and mid-table performance. That's goddamn horrible. But no, I couldn't agree more. I'm an Oilers fan. I said this on the podcast before and yesterday. Oilers went out and Arsenal have all but confirmed City's win of the Premier League. So I'm in a somber mood. But what pisses me off about both um, Arsenal and the Oilers is that it just seems like both of my teams do not show urgency until they're down. You know, like you should be going into like, I don't know what's urgent about. Uh, or why you don't have to be urgent in a game when it's nil-nil. Why do you have to be down for you to be like, oh, God, we got to really get a goal here. Like, it was urgent at the start of the game to win the league. Yeah. You know, like, you should have came out of the gate all over these people. Minamota, absolutely shit all over Ben White. He was Ben Shite that game. Like, I could not believe I've never seen the last time I see somebody go in that many uh in that many circles in that quick a fashion. I was at the fair. Okay? I don't I don't really get it. I don't know why. I don't know what art cuz here's the one of the things. As I don't know where the kick in the ass is from Ar, from Arteta. Like I don't like he seems like a guy that's kicking in the ass. But I don't and maybe it's because he doesn't have the players and we'll talk more about that um but it just seems like for the past couple of games, Arsenal seem a little shell-shocked and you can't knock some sense into them or it seems like you couldn't get uh, get them to snap out of it. Really, if you look at the, even the really great performances that we've won the past couple of games, is basically led by Odegaard and that's it. So I don't know where the shell-shock came in. It could be from a young team that... Uh, you know, the mentality is not there. It's one of those cases where maybe next year, mentally, they'll be a lot better because they've experienced the failure. But
0: one of the things that I'm kind of looking at Arteta and seeing is one of the deficiencies in his game. Like, as you look at both, Arsenal, those great comebacks, a lot of them didn't start until the 75th, 80th minute. Like, you look at that, Arsenal doesn't always look like they're that much of a different team coming out of halftime. Mm-hmm. But you can see in some teams, you can tell well, that halftime team talk really had an impact. That's not to say Arsenal haven't come back and gotten results in cases, but it seems like it's so far beyond just right after halftime that it seems like it's... And it could be good tactics, good substitutions by Arteta, but the halftime team talks just don't... Because really, you would think about... You'd think Arteta would see that first half. They went in nil-nil. Both teams are still having a chance to win. And you'd think he should have lit that fire under their ass. Mm -hmm. And either he did and the players didn't respond... Or he didn't, and either way, something misfired there, whether you can, whether Arteta was, did some poor man-manager, didn't do the, enough of the right put pieces with the man-management stuff, but it was just pedestrian, and then they got behind, and, and
1: then I got... I wonder if it's a depth issue, like, related to... Like, obviously, Arteta's to blame for some of it, but I wonder if it's a depth issue, because you used to see Arsenal at the start of games flying out the gate, And then at the start of second halves, fly out the gate for 10 minutes. And then you'd see them kind of fall off again if it was a bad game or whatever. But they usually started first half and second halves with a lot of fire. Uh, Not necessarily that it would change the game. But I wonder, and you look at uh, Arteta's way of like not changing anybody. Like you go into halftime where you have to get in a kick in the ass and there's no changes at all. And they play another half an hour. It's not like they play ten minutes and then a switch. Um, he does his sixty-fifth minute, almost seventy-minute switch, and it's one of those. Could you have not done that earlier? Like that guy. It's that almost
0: he, frustrating when you see a response, but there's just not enough time to change yeah. the outcome of the game. Well,
1: it's just one of those things where if if you're kicking a player in the ass in the first half, and we're saying this guy needs to be subbed, and then he he. Be, you continue like it's almost like Arsenal or Arteta gives him the benefit, the player, the benefit of the doubt for too long and then decides to change. And then you see some type of, but I'm just with the depth issue. I was just, I was talking to Brian about this the other day is I wonder if it's the case of there's not, there's some depth in Arsenal, like having good bench players come off, but there's no depth as far as first team starting 11 type of players. Like you have maybe one player, that comes in and it looks like an absolute starting 11 type of player when you when you switch out Martinelli and you'd maybe switch them out with um, Trossard you would look at okay well that's kind of a starting 11 not necessarily competing in like the highest level but surely in the Premier League Trossard was a starting 11 player
0: you look at the I think on the bench Partey and Trossard are the only players that you look at and yeah. only difference makers
1: well you, you other even, than Reece Nelson well well, you look at Partey like in that game. You're right, but uh, Partey looks like a starting eleven player. But is Jorginho really a starting eleven player anymore? We don't know. Like, I don't know if that's somebody that you would look at and go, "He's absolutely still got it." He definitely still does a job and things like that. But that's why, like, when you're looking into the summer, uh, this summer transfer window, it'd be nice to see players where it's like, like, who comes on for Saka. Nobody. Which, by the way, I heard nobody wants Pepe. It's the Pepe redemption. Yeah, fourth year's the charm. Oh, I think fourth year. But anyways, what if what if Odegaard unlocked Pepe? Oh God, Uh, damn it! But anyways, you can only you know that's just desperation. But it's it's like you have Jesus. He's not playing good. Who's coming on for him?
0: Your defenses. No, that's
1: freaking like. And Keke is a championship player, like, let's be honest, but so you would just like to see more, you know, you have an injury to Saliba and Kawar is the replacement now, but at the time you're like, Rob Holding's not quite good enough to be like a, you just look at it and you, you don't have a suitable replacement. So
0: I think the Kiwar I think is a good segue. One of probably the most controversial point in that match, um, stems from gets a stomp on his ankle. Um, whistle hasn't gone cross comes in and the Brighton player has a free header to put it in the, in the back of the net. What was your take on that?
1: Sorry. I just got to put on my tinfoil hat. Okay. Okay. That would have absolutely, absolutely been a penalty if it was Jacka stepping down on Kaur. I don't, here's the thing. It, it doesn't have to be malicious to be a foul. It, it doesn't. If there's contact, if there's enough contact, here's the thing. Core should play to the whistle. Absolutely no excuse. But my thing is there's so many consistent inconsistencies. You're stepping on a player enough that their boot comes out of their shoe. That's enough contact to bring it back with a foul. They, in the same game, they brought the corner back when there was, when there was too aggressive jostling going on. So why isn't it blown back or whatever? when when there's somebody that has a shoe removed because there's contact and the evidence is there. Once again, it's not an excuse core should get up, play without a shoe for that for that second of, you know. Well
0: was um, was it was he going down because he was hurt or because he wanted to put his shoe back on?
1: Well no what happened is like I think what it is is a natural thing if somebody like has contact on the back of your leg in that fashion it kind of uh screws up or you go um Like you might want to fall especially like if it's high on the back of the knee it just causes you to bend your leg but also you know soccer players are trained like you feel contact go down type of thing not necessarily in a diving fashion but if it's like if you're almost going to the ground you should just go to the ground is what they are taught but i still think that you should have the presence of mind to try but VARs looked at look, looked at things for less. so I don't know why there is even there wasn't even a look but that's not the reason that they lost. The
0: thing that I struggle with and I think every referee in the Premier League has a different understanding. I, what does clear and obvious mean? you hear those words a lot in, in relation it to
1: nothing. VAR just to the ref, like it means nothing
0: because for me there's just too much ambiguity, too much uncertainty for how you interpret that. Because whether the referee, we talk about referees a lot, don't we? There's just a oh, little him. boys' club, and they want to stand up for each other. But for me, the VAR official should wear when he's not looking at something, he should wear earmuffs and a blindfold. He should not know what the call was on the field. Oh, yeah. That's how you can tell. Because and then if he thinks disagrees with the ref, then he should probably go look at it. Because it seems like things have to be so so clear that they're getting things. They're they're okay to they're. Fine with getting things wrong. They just don't want to get things atrociously wrong. Yeah. And that seems like a problem.
1: Oh no, it's a big problem. It's ridiculous. I don't want to digress too much, but in hockey, it's like the ref reading in the playoffs in hockey has been brutal. Like across the board. There's a guy on Edmonton last night, got a skip stick to the face, and the ref told him to get up. And he gets up and he's bleeding from the face. And and the the players like. Showing him the blood, and he's like, "No call." Now, like it's it's so ridiculous because in, in hockey they have a rule where you can make a coach's challenge on things leading the goal, kind of like VRs use. However, if the coach gets it wrong on the coach's challenge, they get a penalty for it. Where are the penalties for refereeing having bad decisions come up? There is no consequence for like there should be a consequence for refereeing. In any sport, especially in football, when you have when you have uh, referees that if you say anything bad about the referee, you get fined. If you say anything uh, in game to the referee, where's the incentive for a referee that if you make a horrible decision, there's a fine for you. If you found out that that was a horrific decision, like the way that you conducted, because if you make a wrong call, that's fine. But you should be conducting yourself in every aspect of the game. And they don't give a shit. Like they don't, if they make a bad call, like you're saying, they're like, oh, whatever. They're just trying to, the PR is what VAR seems to be. Like you're saying, as long as it's not terribly wrong, there's not going to be too much of a PR uh,
0: issue. I've got a very outside the box idea. We operate referees almost as having their own league. And there's an independent review panel that kind of assigns them a score, a point score out of 10 in a certain game. And then their total divided by the games that they've played. Forms a league table of sorts. That so good. that the worst refs in the league that year are going down. And then the refs in the championship,
1: oh, the, three, the
0: three best, are going up.
1: They should include that in the world. And then they could just show that all the English refs are shit.
0: Yeah, we'd have. Well, yeah, but there wouldn't be an English ref in the, well, the you Premier know League. Well, you know what
1: the worst thing, too, is like even in the game with Arsenal, is like the English refs have such attitude. Like This wasn't the game yesterday, but I remember me and you were watching one of the games where you just saw the theatrics of the ref. Like he had to walk a certain distance with no reaction just so he could, you know. Resist. Well, he's just making oh, sure yeah. every
0: camera was on. Him. Oh yeah.
1: It's just one of those like, Oh,
0: it's but ridiculous. there's, but there's no, they hold players accountable. If you play like shit, you don't play. It's almost like tenure in academics. And I, you talk about hockey. So I'll give myself permission to talk about baseball. You see some umpires in baseball, Oh, my gosh, they're atrocious. Angel Hernandez, I don't know if anyone (laughs) watches baseball, absolutely atrocious. But it's just like tenure. Once you're in, it's so hard to – I don't know if it's the union protects them. I think a lot I know in North baseball, I think they're part of a union. I don't know if they're part of a union in England. But anyway, we talked about refs a lot.
1: I just want to say one more thing. They're the
0: gift that keeps on giving.
1: I just wonder if refereeing – like if they were even without the consequences or like that table idea that you were saying – maybe it would just be enough that referees, like just like players have to answer those stupid questions where it's like, how can you guys play like shit today? You know, like, why not have a press conference for ref, pay them a little bit more and it's part of their contract that they have to do media, you know, and they're, and they have to answer like, cause I think it, if somebody was like, you know, there's a really horrific call made today, you know, and the, the referee can say something like, you know what? I just didn't see it. I didn't feel comfortable get, making a call that would have changed the course of the game on something that I didn't see. You know what I mean? But then again, it's like, why well, didn't you use BAR? It just seems like something that they would never want to do the press conference because they'd sound like, oh, well, I didn't want to do my job in those two moments, or I wanted the game to keep going, or, you know, I had a tea time at whatever, so I wanted the game over with.
0: But- well, I just recently, earlier, I didn't read this article, but Howard Webb, who's the head of the – refs association i think he was he's wanting to show fans more of the footage of what referees are saying and talking to each other so it's kind of a step in that direction but at the end of the day it doesn't matter what the fans think it's the playing staff coaching staff that need those answers more than the fans do
1: why wouldn't it wouldn't it make sense for refs to be mic'd up like why do they have to deliberate in secret i don't know anyways i just want to talk about the the fact that, like, if anybody had any type of a doubt with Arsenal, just to go back to Arsenal, like, it's been done. Like, this game didn't change the fact that it was done. It was done before. But Arsenal, basically, they need City to have two two losses and a draw to win. So, that is less than 1%. You know, that is 0.0000000000 zero one percent chance Uh, especially with the fixtures it would be an absolute miracle anyways um city will win the league next week and it will we cannot worry about it but it's not a failure of a season i just want to put that out there it's not um but yeah let's go to the because we got another topic but wolves game complete performance by united professional wolves have nothing to play for they don't really give a shit so
0: that's that's pretty much all there is no. to it. United you know, n- never looked too uncomfortable for them. Yeah, it's a, it's just a performance you've come to expect from United at home, and and it's the frustrating thing because you have the contrast between Eric ten Hag, who's made Old Trafford somewhat of a fortress, and he, the guy looks like he's never managed in his life on away games, and then you had Ole Gunnar Scholskar. Who would lose a home game to a crap team and then go to the Etihad the next weekend and win? So I guess when you're thinking about how you're developing a team, probably you want to look about shoring your performances off at home and then working on getting the results away. So in that case, I think that's more positive than being inconsistent. Because United, for you think about their results, I, I think they're almost perfect again in home again home games against weaker teams than them. And they're almost perfect in losing every game against <laughs> away teams that are sort of around them in the table. So it's it's probably a step in the right direction. But honestly, that, that home form, and or just having the goal difference that they're going to have, which is probably very small, which might be 15 plus 15, Liverpool's far ahead of them. They're going to get into the top four. They might not necessarily have deserved it, but I think they'll get there.
1: So, um, this is kind of a double question, but what does United have to do um, to improve next year so it's not an in doubt top four?
0: I think there's one answer that is so clear that I would call anyone who says otherwise completely stupid. You have to look at the number nine. Right now, United have about horse, awful player. They're not all, I think he could do a job in, in some Premier League teams or championship teams. But he just hasn't, he hasn't scored in the Premier League yet. And no matter what you do as a number nine, you still have to score goals. You can't, you have to get, you have to score goals, whether you're playing as a pressing forward or a target man, whatever you want to say. You have to get probably at a rate of one goal in every three games is the absolute minimum to keep yourself in the team. Plus all the other hold up play, bringing the wingers into the game, things like that. Anthony Martial, I've told this to Brett a few times. This guy is absolutely lethal for about the first 50 to 60 minutes after he comes back from an injury. And then he goes cold again. He did score this past weekend. Rashford, we can't count on him to be how he was that point in the midseason when everyone was calling him great. That's not who he is. He's still going to be able to contribute goals. I would still expect him to be a 20-plus goals type of player in all competitions next year. Um, I think of a little more consistency, but it, I think we, we got a glimpse of what he can do. So you have to look at it, a Harry Kane type player. You would think Harry Kane fits the bill almost perfectly. Because if you're looking, if Ten Hag is appreciating the type of player that Horst is, Harry Kane does all that. And plus, he seems like he can score about two goals every three games or at least a goal every other game, bring them back into the goals. Midfield, you know, there's, there might not a ton of depth. Fred's been decent. McTominay seems like can come in and, and do a decent job at times. Casemiro, Bruno and Erickson, That's a pretty decent midfield three If the defenders can stay healthy if in, and Martinez can come back healthy. And then goalkeeper is probably the second biggest issue. But I think that if you think about what's going to change the team the most, it's that number nine.
1: Yeah, I think United still need to clear out some players, kind of strip the people that aren't uh, 100% behind Ten Hag, get some a premium defender. I think. Um, still, I don't think Varane is going to be the long term answer. So try to find somebody that's a premium defender but young that's going to grow into something. Yeah.
0: They've been linked um, heavily. Just in fact, today there is. You know those pictures they do where they Photoshop a player in the certain team's yeah, yeah. kit, and then who was it? It was Kim. That's the defender oh, yeah. from Napoli. Obviously, I'm not. I haven't didn't watch hardly any Serie A, but Napoli won the league, and they talked about him being one of their strongest players mm-hmm. in defense. So probably a decent, yeah. decent move. Hopefully, I don't know how he is. What kind of defender he is? If he's a ball player, if he's more of a stopper, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind seeing another defender. Come through the door. Obviously, Martinez is injured. It's hard to tell. Some players bounce right back from an injury. He's young enough and I think tenacious enough to to get back and to not lose it. But who knows? It's and we got to see that Luke Shaw can somewhat play center back too, which is but no, that's not his long term fit. And then Hakimi
1: <laughs> being linked. Huh. That would be wonderful. That would be bad. Hakimi, Kim, Martinez, Shaw. No thanks. Um, yeah, no, Arsenal need some more premium players, but
0: what, what what have you heard of transfer budgets for Arsenal?
1: 300
0: 300 million.
1: Well, 300 million with player sales. So uh, see,
0: we were talking earlier about Arteta looking at wanting starting 11 players. Yeah. So you're looking at probably spending at least 50 to 60 million to get starting 11 players. That's probably in the low end, maybe closer to 80. No,
1: no well, I think, I think Arteta is going to spend the Cronkies have, apparently Stan Cronkies going to have two, 200 million. And then with player sales, it could reach close to 300 million. But I heard Arteta wants to sign two players that are um, 80 to a hundred million. Uh, and then, and then the rest of the money in other avenues. So I heard he wants a premium, uh striker which makes sense for somebody to have competition and i think he also wants another winger um and a midfielder but so i think he wants depending on a he might not go for a sole striker but i think he wants a premium attack or a premium midfield and then he wants to bolster some backup pieces for defense
0: yeah i think that someone that can play along that front three because you're getting a a pre like a number nine of sorts that really could only play in that role but like you said earlier saka and arsenal have played some of their best football when you're seeing when you're seeing that front three that can play anywhere
1: i could see them trying to go like with 300 million it's not a lot that you can play with with some of the rumors so i think they'll go after rice that would probably be 100 million um then they'll try to get an 80 million dollar uh, attacker, whether that's a winger or a striker, I'm not sure. um Actually, I think they'll, I think they'll probably sign a striker and a winger, and then that will be just about the 300 million, to be honest. And then they'll have you know a couple 20 million dollar players. But, anyways, it's a long way away. But 25 minutes into this recording, let's get in the stoppage time. I'm gonna start off the question because this is just ridiculous. But anyways. David De Gea wins the Golden Boot. Does well, that tell Does that tell us that the uh, Premier League needs to change their criteria for winning the Golden or the Golden Club, not the Golden Boot? Well,
0: in general, they should have looked at this years ago, I think. But I think it's glaring when you see De Gea win it this year. And don't get me wrong; he he might have had a save of the season. He might have had some candidates for that. But it seems like the only. And they and I understand how they want it to be simple. Golden boot is just goals, but goals are an individual statistic way more than clean sheets is. Clean sheets impacts the keeper, and most probably more importantly, the defenders. If you have a solid defensive line, if you give me some of the best defensive players in the Premier League, I could play net and man for Man City some games, and I think I could keep a clean sheet.
1: I don't know both that. But well, if they knew how awful
0: I was, they just pelted at me from all angles. But you know what I mean. When you look about, te- there's sometimes where a team doesn't have a shot on target, yeah, and the keeper gets a clean sheet, and they get the oh, they get the plotted statistically yeah. when they didn't contribute.
1: They should do it uh, the same way the NHL does for the Vesna, which is you have three candidates that are based off stats, and then they have a panel that like votes on it, but. Um, because you would think if they're doing it at all or nothing, just one stat, it wouldn't be clean sheets; it would be save percentage um, for the best keeper. I know that would have problems too, but that seems like a more accurate picture.
0: Or well, you could do a combination. You could do goals against average. You could yeah. do your save percentage and clean sheets, and and even kind of just looking at the the eye test. If you look at Brentford's keeper, for example, very low in the clean sheet race, but a very high save percentage. Yeah, who's probably more deserving than what the stats, what go, what the Golden Glove criteria would think he is right now. Anyway, other awards, PFA Players Player of the Season, the one that they vote on. Who's the favorite
1: for that one? Is that the, that's the one that the players vote yeah. on? Yeah, right? they'll probably vote Holland. I would think so. Yeah, I think here's an argument. Do you think Kevin De Bruyne should win it? For serving, uh, serving silver platters for Holden. Holden.
0: <laughs> you know, I feel like the league loves to just give it to someone new and exciting. De Bruyne has already won it twice. De Bruyne, if he wins it again, would be the first player to ever win it three times. I think Ronaldo's won it twice. De Bruyne has won it twice. I think Saul has won it twice. I think
1: yeah, it's got to be Holden I know. Uh, which team has surprised you the most in the Premier League this season? I just it could have be a
0: good or bad way. Well, I'm probably going to go with Chelsea <sighs> in a bad way. But no, this is a team coming off winning the Champions League with a good manager, Tuchel. I think everyone agreed is a good manager. The club had just completed this takeover, and here's the thing: this is the first time in history we'd seen a takeover of a club that was already good, and then we're adding all this money. You look at Newcastle or you look at City, they were kind of crap teams when the when the money came in. So you're thinking this should go well for, for Chelsea. And you think if you honestly if they kept Tuchel and didn't spend and only spent a very limited amount, they could be in the top four this year playing handily.
1: My my number one surprise was actually Liverpool. I didn't think they were gonna be like you know, going from close to winning the like quadruple to um absolutely being horrific that's who i would have picked if you want if we change this question to who had the most predictable season it's Tottenham. but anyways <laughs> uh, last question uh did united have a better season than arsenal no why very quickly
0: i don't value the care about cup you have to we just looking at expectation where they started united was probably predicted to probably be one place above Arsenal ish, I would say, if you just looked on average. But United have pretty much met expectations in most places. And and Arsenal did quite we talked earlier yeah. today, if you looked at the if you were in a coma and woke up today and looked at the league table, you'd be, holy crap, good job Arsenal.
1: I think Arsenal had a tiny bit in the short term, worse season based on achievement, but long term it's a better season to look at performances. So Arsenal had a slightly better season. We'll catch you in the next one.